Hello and welcome to the sixth episode in season two of the Principles for Principles podcast. We're excited to bring our listeners a podcast that supports district and school leaders. Our goal is to share, learn, and connect about current ideas and best practices in school leadership around relevant topics. Whether you are an experienced or novice leader, this podcast is for you. Today's conversation will explore ideas, tips, and resources in developing or fine-tuning your leadership skills. Hi, we're your hosts, Erin Dare and Julia Breedy from the San Diego County Office of Education. We'll be talking to Executive Leadership Coach and our colleague, Ross Godfrey. Ross is here to bring life and differentiation to what we commonly think of when we think of professional development. Hi, Ross. Hello. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, some of the mindsets when we talk about professional learning and uh, some things I wish I knew when I was a principal uh, and maybe muddled through. And uh, so I'm happy to share maybe some of the resources and research uh, that my colleague Rich Carrion and I have taught in our 604 class uh, through our PASC and and, uh, maybe give a little bit uh, of insight into the shift uh, that we need to get to use the words professional learning. Awesome. Well, we're really excited to have you here. We know that you have a wealth of information and expertise in this area. And so um, we know that, that you know, you, you kind of use this in, in various different capacities, one as, a, as an instructor in one of our programs, but also in the work that you do when you're coaching principals and leaders and others across the county. So what we'd like to know from you is, you know, professional learning um, is different from pro- professional development. Can you just talk a little bit about what the difference is between the two? Yeah. So first of all, uh, a lot of the work that we do uh, is based on some of the research from Lois Brown Easton, as well as uh, Helen Timperley. And uh, what I really appreciate about their work is this notion of professional development has this tone to it that people are underdeveloped, right? Or their education is not complete, or uh, they're not working at the limits of their uh, pedagogical knowledge, right? And so I really like to slow things down and say, uh, if we're going to go at a pace of professional development, we're basically using uh, a kind of throw it against the wall and see if it sticks approach. Uh, We do a lot of research and and, uh, surveys about quality of professional learning at sites and districts. And uh, it was quite shocking to hear that most people feel that it is a professional development, whereas it's a one and done thing. There's no follow through. There's no monitoring for fidelity, uh, as opposed to professional learning, which is based on student need, right? And so uh, really looking at what do our students need and what data pieces are we using? And then going one step forward and saying, as a professional learning community, what is it we need to do and learn more about in order to serve the data what the data is showing for our kids, right, for our students. And so uh, when we really look at those, there's a couple shifts that are there, but the biggest one is really looking on what does our data tell us? And as a learning community, what is it we need to do to help all of our students, especially those that have been most marginalized historically? I appreciate you explaining the difference between the two. And, you know, as you're talking, you know, it's really looking at it as a cycle, right? It's something that you're continuously doing. So, you know, you're looking at that data, you're making some improvements in your instruction, you're providing it to students, you're coming back, you're looking at the, at that data again. And so it's really kind of taking that 
and using those professional learning um, communities to kind of look through that work, share that work and have a shared responsibility. Yeah. And I think it's also another iteration of that is also looking at uh, once we implement as administrators, how are we going in and checking for fidelity and monitoring and giving feedback that's meaningful for, for our learning community to grow? Right. And so uh, instead of just assuming that because we install something and we give some initial training that it's going to happen, we know that doesn't happen. Right. And one of our key facets of data is implementation and fidelity. Right. And so how are we implementing and what supports do our teachers need? And then what are we doing to monitor, adjust and so forth? Both of you really talked about the cycle uh, of it all, but within that cycle, you really um, triggered some thinking around specific leadership actions one might take. I heard use of data, follow-up, monitor, all of those things that we really invite uh, instructional leaders to do with purpose and intention. Thanks so much for giving us a real high-level overview around professional development versus professional learning. You know, our listeners really appreciate the the thinking and research base that we bring to this podcast. But one of the things they often share with us is like, well, what's that look like, like with boots on the ground? What's a real life example of that? So, Ross, I was curious if you might give us an example of professional learning you've led in the past and some different things that you did to ensure it was professional learning instead of professional development. So I guess like many of us, the older I get, the better I was, right, as a principal. But uh, I would say that one of the things that I really look back on that I was probably most proud of uh, was this notion of looking at our data showed through WASC visits, through surveys, and through test scores that our students were achieving at uh, fairly high levels as measured by grades and some measures. But when going into classrooms and doing observations, our data showed a really inconsistent uh, amount of rigor going on in our classrooms. And so after looking at that and working with my instructional leadership team, we really talked about, uh, we didn't have a common understanding of what academic rigor meant in the classroom, right? And so we started with ourselves doing some research and doing a book study uh, on academic rigor and then started doing the work of getting some common definition of what kind of a mission vision piece of what rigor is to us, right? And as a result, then we had to give those tools to the teachers. And we had to really go through and say, here's the work we're doing on rigor. Here's the rationale why, really getting back to that leadership voice, right? And the importance of rigor to our students. And then go through the process of having talks, what it means, building common definitions, and then implementing And so doing that, that became our focus. So every opportunity we had for professional learning, we didn't use it on guest speakers. We didn't use it on somebody coming in for the flavor of the month. We used it to have dialogue and conversations about what rigor is and how we're showing demonstrations and what tools we're using to measure. Back then, we we used depth of knowledge. It was the best tool we have. Uh, you know, and now we know better. And so uh, I would not recommend just using a DOK wheel. I would say using a HESS matrix or something that uh, is a little bit more advanced. But with that, at least it gave us common definition. Uh, As a result of that, I think our learning community started to really blossom and, and have talks about if we implement this task in our PLC group, here's the level of rigor that we'd be getting. And is that what we're truly aiming for? 
And so again, I think over a couple of years, we started seeing definite changes in the level of task that our teachers were doing uh, as a result of this. And again, uh, not easy, uh, took a lot of fortitude. Uh, people would sometimes lose faith and say, this is just something that, you know, you're, you're doing and, and it will outlast it. Uh, but it wasn't about that, right? It was really about ensuring that our students had the best opportunity to perform and have the the tools and skills to do better in college and career. You know, Ross, as you share that example, one of the things that sticks out to me is that this learning just didn't happen on a Tuesday afternoon. It infiltrated <laughs> different times of your day, whether it was um, quick conversations in the hallway, a structured PLC time, a staff meeting time, um, uh, whatever. It, it happened at so many layers and at so many levels. And I think that really helps constitute the difference between professional development and professional learning too. Absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Julia, because one of the things that uh, I always try to think about is if we're using professional learning that's whole group, how does that going to spill out into our, our structures of PLCs, our department meetings, our WASC when we're getting accredited, uh, and how does that inform our spending and our budgetary uh, constraints as well? And so, yeah, it's pretty holistic when you think about it. Uh, I think of each of those as being a gear in the system that needs to work interchangeably with some kind of guiding principle, right? And so... Uh, I I uh, I love that macro view, if you will, of that. Yeah, no, that's super helpful and really a nice segue to uh, a follow-up question here. So one of the things that we really try to do in our podcast is have rich conversations about current practice, but really give some meaningful and relevant tips and tricks. So as instructional leaders, we're constantly challenged to think of meaningful professional learning opportunities for our educators. What tips would you give our instructional leaders who are maybe just getting started with that? The, the first thing I would think about is uh, really understanding the capacity right now that your learning community has, right? Uh, I know at schools and LEAs, there's priorities that we have to do. Uh, and I know from my wife being a teacher, she commonly says, if I have one more thing put on my plate right now, my head might explode, right? So I know that's very real. Uh, so we have to look at the capacity to make meaningful change and really look at what is it we're trying to do. Uh, so that that's one piece, which is, uh, you know, kind of uh, when we look at culture before strategy. I think the other piece really, too, is that, and I think it's a mistake, is that uh, we can't base our professional learning uh, on assumptions or feelings or anything else. We really need to look at what the data says. So I think uh, if we look at our data, if we look at our outcome data uh, over time, we really need to look at what are the pain points and what's in our locus of control that we can start this work with, right? And so, uh, again, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of saying data is important, but how do we use it in a manner that will inform what our next steps are uh, to start this work? So, and it's not easy. And I think the other piece, the, uh, the last piece of advice, because I could give uh, talk about this all day probably, <laughs> but I think a big, big piece too is, uh, the teachers and your learning community have to be part of this, right? Uh, if we want meaningful change, we need to share the data and we need to, to make sure that we lead the work, 
but don't dictate the work. Because remember, if we're going to change from professional development to professional learning, we have to look at not only what the kids need, but what do the adults need in order to make that happen for the students, right? And so as a result, we really need to use and leverage the expertise and knowledge uh, of our teachers and our learning community. You know, Ross, as I reflect on what you've just shared, you called out some specific leadership actions again, like data and whatnot. But throughout your narrative, you kept talking about that human aspect and how is there humanity in the work that we're doing? And I really appreciate that, right? And you even said beyond strategy, what are the needs? And so how is it that we really balance the head and the heart doing this work as well? And I really appreciated that. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today, but yeah, in conclusion- yeah, thanks. We always ask some fun questions of our podcast guests, and we know you are an avid traveler and have um, sailed the seas of many uh, of of many bodies of water around our world. And so, we want to know what's the what is one of the favorite trips you've taken. So, uh, last summer, my wife and I had an opportunity to. Uh, to go through uh, the fjords of Norway for a couple of weeks. And uh, I went in not knowing much. Uh, we flew to Amsterdam and I kind of was not really knowing what to expect. And once we took to the seas and went through the fjords, I was completely blown away by the the scenery, the people, the warmth, uh, the different culture. Uh, and uh, it was kind of the trip of a lifetime uh, in that uh, here you are and it reminds us how small we are in the scheme of the whole world uh, and all this nature and beauty around us. And so uh, I highly recommend if you're able to ever get to uh, Norway to to take that all in. It's it's pretty special. I've seen your pictures. It looks amazing. <laughs> Is that when you were floating in front of the ship? You had your little raft and you were out there in the water. Was that the, the picture? Yeah, we uh, we did some of that, right? And uh, yeah, thankfully, uh, thankfully, my wife pushes me. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a traveler, and I love the culture and the food and the stepping out. But sometimes, uh, I'm a little bit of a guardian, and I love my safe space, right? So my uh, <laughs> my wife always pushes me to go one step. The further extremes. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, where's the destination on your bucket list? Well. Uh, we have a couple trips planned, but uh, in the summer of 24, we are going to uh, go through the Mediterranean and Adriatic, and I'm really looking forward to spending a couple days in Istanbul, uh, which is one of the highlights of the trip. And then uh, obviously, never, still never been, I've been to Europe, but not to Italy proper. And so uh, we're going to spend a few days in some of the highlights of, of the Mediterranean, but uh, the Adriatic part of that really intrigues me as well, going to Croatia and uh, and also some of the Greek Isles. So that's the that's the next big trip, uh, 21 days throughout Europe. So, Erin, it sounded like you were going to say something. What was it? No, I, I mean, I was going to just, uh, I don't remember what I was going to say, actually. Oh, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so in conclusion to our travel conversation today is we want to know what exotic dish have you tried out there that you're like, wow, this is pretty different, but amazing. (laughs) 
so I'm not an adventurous eater. Uh, so I have to live like, I have to live vicariously through my wife. Uh, but I will say, uh, we were in a place called Honingsvog, Norway, which is probably the most Northern point until you get to the North Cape, which is the top of the world pretty much. And, uh, they have an incredible uh, fishing industry there of king crab. And so uh, I've shared a lot of pictures of it, but, uh, you know, this king crab, you could pick up and put your arms fully out and it would span your whole wingspan. And so it's one thing to see it and hold it while it's still alive. And then uh, it's another thing for the lady to hand you a knife and say, all right, now we're going to take care of this and cook it. Right. And so, I think uh, seeing your food alive a couple minutes before you eat it is a little bit of a, an adventurous piece for me. But uh, as far as eating and drinking different things, I'm, I'm a little bit scaredy cat, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> my wife pushes me. <laughs> That's great. Well, Ross, she we appreciate you yeah, coming and sharing your experiences and, and also your knowledge on professional learning. And um, so we, we appreciate you participating today on our podcast. So thank you Thanks all for, for joining us on this episode of Principles for Principles. If you want leadership resources, you can subscribe to our Today's Informed Principle, which we call our tip sheet, using the link in the podcast show notes. If you have feedback or you want to give us a shout out on today's episode, tweet us at SD underscore principles. We'd love to hear from you. Join us again next time for more school leadership tips. Thanks for listening.